Money FM 89.3, the best of your money. Money and me on your money, only on Money FM 89.3. Welcome to Money and Me. I'm Michelle Martin. You may be worried about the probability of recession, watching rising costs around you, and you may be wondering are there hidden places of value within the galaxy of ETFs or exchange traded funds? Where is there potential opportunity? You may want a passive strategy and ETFs wrapped around certain factors that could offer favorable defensive characteristics. So, where should you start? We decipher the world of ETFs today with Tim Phillips, head of content and investment lead for Prosperous CGS CIMB Securities. Tim, good morning. First up, help us understand the acronym. We love our acronyms here in Singapore. What is an ETF or exchange traded fund? Yeah, good morning, Michelle. Thanks for having me. Uh, basically, an ETF is, yeah, as, as you said, an exchange traded fund. So I think a lot of people, maybe when they start investing, everyone tells them an ETF is the best way to start. And some people are like, oh, what's, an, what's actually an ETF? So um, I'm here to try and run, like, you know, go through that and, and break it down. So mm-hmm. effectively, an ETF tries to track an index or a stock market index. If you're thinking about a traditional exchange traded fund, so if you think of a, an S&P 500 index in the US, or you think of the Straits Times Index here in, in Singapore, or in Hong Kong, you have the Hang Seng Index, you will have a ETF that basically has uh, buys into the same components of the index and holds, you know, basically the equal weighting of, of that of that exchange. So if you think about the S&P 500, the makeup of that, maybe Apple has a weighting of 8 or 9%, the ETF will have exactly the same weighting or will buy the shares that make up the same weighting. So it's basically just a passive investment vehicle for investors. If they don't have to think, they don't have to really um, sort of actively manage it. Uh, and it's all done on behalf of them by the by the fund provider, whoever is managing the ETF, which is usually you know one of the big fund houses like Vanguard or BlackRock or uh, or State Street. Um, they will they will manage that ETF and they will uh, rebalance it accordingly whenever the makeup changes of that exchange. Um, so I think it's a great way for investors to really. Uh, have a passive presence in in the market without having to time the market or guess about you know guess about companies or which or stock picks. So effectively, it's more of a, a hedge against stock picking, and it's more putting yourself in the market long term and remaining invested. So I think it's a great vehicle for uh, for everybody actually. I think for professional investors and and stock, beginner beginner investors alike as well. So as you mentioned, there are many different managers for ETFs. So as an investor, how can I differentiate between a, a State Street or a Vanguard ETF? How are they different? What should I be looking out for? What makes them different? There are two key factors. First off, there's the size, right? So that's the, the size of the fund, the AUM, so the assets under management. So how much money the ETF is actually attracted because if there's more money and there's more scale, that directly leads to the second factor. They'll be able to lower the cost. And so at the end of the day, one of the great things about an ETF is that it's low cost. So it gives you access to a passive investment vehicle at, at virtually, you know, in some of the, some of these big funds, they, they have expense ratio. So the expense ratio is what investors should really look out for when they access a fund. An expense ratio is basically the management fee for managing the fund. And it's this, it's usually displayed as a total expense ratio, which is TER or just, you know, expense ratio itself. And so that is displayed usually as a percentage. 
And it used to be higher, you know, probably about 10 years, 15 years ago, but there's been a massive price war between all the big, big mm. fund providers. And as they've scaled, and as you've seen BlackRock take on trillions in assets under management, they've been able to drive down the expense ratio. So now for the core S&P 500 ETF for BlackRock and even for Vanguard, it's as low as 0.03%. So it's nearly free for investors <laughs> to put their money there. You know, whereas I think if you're thinking about the traditional fund management unit trust industry, you're looking at fund fees of between annual fees of between 1.5 to 2%, right? So it's just a massive, massive difference if you're thinking about actively managed funds versus ETF. So I'd say, you know, the liquidity is important, the size of the fund. And then secondly, the expense ratio, because at the end of the day, you as an investor want to grow your money, you grow your wealth, right? So fees really eat into that wealth generation over the long term. And if they compound over, you know, you've seen all the charts, if, if it's a 1% fee or a 2% or a 3%, it does eat into your capital over time. So really, they've managed to drive down the price. So I think looking at the expense ratio and looking at the size of the ETF is, is crucial. There are lots of investors who are searching for income and stability from hawkish monetary policy. Do you think ETFs offer good places of value during a recession? Yeah, they can do. I mean, I think I take the more long-term view of if you think about the market over you know, 50 or 60 years, it's always up and to the right, no matter what the issues are. Right? If, you, if you're thinking about the U.S. to the largest stock market in the world, there's always, there's always going to be problems you know, in the 60s with tensions with the Cold War and then the 70s with hyperinflation, the 80s with just crazy, crazy interest rates at like sort of close to 19%. Right? But in the end, over 80, 90 years, the, the stock chart is up and to the right. So there are periods where it does fall and then, you know, People have to change their strategies. But if you think about the broad market and what what you're going to see over the long term, it makes much more sense just to stay invested in an ETF, which tracks the broad market. So I think there's an opportunity for investors to, you know, in the the current sell-off, there's always an opportunity to just dollar cost average into an ETF. Just stay invested and, and don't be scared out of the market. I suppose the question is, are there factors that can offer favorable defensive characteristics should a recession hit? And how do we go Mm. past the languaging of a lot of these ETFs, which sound exactly like what anybody would need? (laughs) Take, for example, the Invesco S&P 500, high dividend, low volatility, UCITS ETF. I mean, it sounds exactly like what we want, right? Strong income potential. So how do we get past the languaging to look at the factors that really matter when choosing an ETF? Yeah, well, uh, that goes basically to the holdings, right? So what, I mean, the ETF is always great. There's always packaging and marketing and, and branding on the on the name of the ETF, but what's actually in the ETF, mm. right? So whenever you, you buy something in a store or whenever you, you know, you, you're basically looking at it and, and its makeup and, you know, how well it's made. And so this is the same thing with an ETF. It's basically what goes into the components of the ETF, right? What's inside it? And so a lot of these things that try to tell you that it's low volatility or, you know, high dividend, you have to really understand the, I guess, sector exposure you're exposed to. And then also the individual stock weighting as well, because I think there's something, you know, the Vanguard high dividend, Vanguard dividend appreciation ETF, which is VIG, you know, that Mm -hmm. to me sounds like, okay, that's a a fast growing dividend uh, stocks that, you know, if I, if I look at that name, I'd be like, okay, that's a dividend ETF. So that should be pretty defensive, but you know, it's down about 14.4% year to date. And if you look at the makeup, it's around 23% tech. So it's actually very similar to the S&P 500. But what it does have is the big tech guys that pay dividends, right? So it has Apple, it has Microsoft, it has, you know, a few other names like Johnson & Johnson, United Health. But 
a lot of these are maybe less, they're not going to be that defensive because there's some consumer discretionary names and there's some tech names. And so they've been hit quite badly. And so in a sense, you'd think that it would be defensive, but it ends up not being that defensive, but it's still outperformed the S&P 500. So I would, I would say that. But then if you think about another Vanguard fund, which is the high dividend yield ETF, which is VYM, VYM, yeah, so that's the ticker. And that has a lot more financials and that has a lot more consumer staples and the yield of those, those stocks that are inside, they're higher as well. So I think it's more about the makeup of the ETF itself and understanding what exposure you have to individual components and then crucially, you know, sector-wise. And so going back to your point about recession, I guess, you know, a defensive stance in this type of environment, if you're thinking about recession and you think about interest rates, you know, you think, uh, how would you want to position your portfolio if you own stocks in the sector? I guess you just should just mirror that in the ETF, right? If you're thinking about healthcare, healthcare is traditionally thought of as pretty defensive. Consumer staples are thought of as pretty defensive because consumer staples, healthcare utilities, you've got to buy electricity. You've got to, you know, if there's an operation that people need or if there's drugs that people need, then you'll need, you know, they'll basically, they're not discretionary items. You need to, to buy them and same with staples as well. So those three sectors over periods of recession and I guess higher, inter- higher inflation, they tend to outperform. So there's loads of options for, for ETFs. You know, all the big guys will have their own uh, healthcare ETF, the utilities ETF, which, which will mirror the uh, MSCI, which is the Global Industry Classification System, which, uh, which is also known as uh, GICS. Mm-hmm. And they will, have, they will have ETFs that mirror those, right? So I think that's an option for people who want to have a defensive ETF tilt if they still want to stay invested. But I would caution, you know, look at the expense ratio and also look at what's in the ETF itself to make sure you are comfortable with with that exposure. Sound advice. Tim Phillips is my guest, head of content and investment lead for Prosperous CGS CIMB Securities. So one of my favorite guests was 22 and then decided that she wanted freedom from debt. So by 33, she was debt free. She'd built a portfolio based on rentals. Yes, she'd started to get into property by that time. She'd been able to build up a portfolio of passive income that was enough for her to quit her job and find financial freedom. She's a multimillionaire. I was so grateful to have her on my show. And you can watch that interview on YouTube, by the way, Inside a Millionaire's Portfolio is what you have to Google. Anyway, she shared with me, Myra, about how it was the S&P 500 ETF, a Vanguard ETF that she used to build her wealth, you know, at the start of things. $5 became 500 a month. She just refused to look at it. And over time, it was a cornerstone of her portfolio. So, Tim, I wonder if you can help us understand if we invested, say, $10,000 pre-COVID in an S&P 500 ETF, how would yeah. we figure out what that 10000 would be worth today? Okay, yeah. So this would be looking at the uh, total return, right? So the total return, say you put 10000 in pre-COVID in 2019 or, or whenever, or 2009, you look at the 10000 that you had back then, and then you would, you would add together all your dividends that you received over that period and then add it to your ending value and then you know work that work that out as it as a percentage that's a pretty simplified i guess breakdown of just total return over that period but if you wanted to annualize it there would be a bit more complicated you know maths and equations i mean to be honest i think it's easier to explain to listeners just to type in if you wanted to look at excel everyone has excel right? okay. microsoft mm-hmm. excel yeah. you can just put it into a spreadsheet if you put in into google total return and then in excel formula it will give you basically the formula that you can just put in and it will, you know, if you work it out 
as a annualized total return. That's basically your compound annual compound annual growth rate of those of those funds, right? And so it would be your total return plus one divided by the year that you started divided by the years that you've had invested and then minus one and then that's times a hundred, right? So it doesn't make much sense. Like uh, it doesn't sound so great talking about it all over the uh, <laughs> the phone, but if you put in Excel sort of Excel formula for uh, total, total return, return it, you'll you'll be able to get something, and it will. You just put that into an Excel spreadsheet, and you'll be able to figure out your annualized total return, which I think is more key than the total return over the period because mm-hmm. annualized it, it gives you a better idea of how like how you're compounding your your actual portfolio. Mm-hmm. But if you're thinking about a portfolio and if you're thinking about a brokerage, I mean, we, you know, we have tools that have it and all the big brokers have tools that will allow you to actually understand your portfolio's total return anyway or annualized total return. So I think it would be easier just to use your broker's tools if they have that available to you. But if you want to do it manually, you can do it. You can just uh, find the formula online and you'll be able to, you'll be able to figure it out. Okay, interesting. Are there ETFs that will allow us to, you know, many people build their wealth on the S&P 500 ETF, but is there an ETF for the STI if we wanted to buy into one? Yeah, so there's actually a local ETF listed here on the SGX it's, uh, with the ticker ES3. It's done by State Street. So it's one of, I think it's one of the only ones that listed in, in Singapore, but it's the Straits Times Index ETF. And that obviously mirrors the Straits Times Index makeup. So it has all the big banks, uh, the telcos as the more dominant holding in the fund. But the expense ratio, I would say, is, is higher, right? Because I think the scale of the Straits Times Index here is just a lot lower. If you think about the ES3, rather, the State Street ETF here, it's got an AUM of about $1.7 billion. Whereas, you know, if you think about the Vanguard, the VU, which I, I think you're guest that you're talking about probably invested in that's got an AUM of about 270 billion right so it's um mm. it's a it's a magnitude larger so the liquidity allows you to have a lower expense ratio and so the expense ratio for the space street ETF is at 0.3% so that's 10 times what you would pay for the US for the core S&P 500 ETF so in that sense there's there is an ETF that you can track and that's great uh, it's just be aware that you know the expense ratio obviously will be significantly higher but i would mention for SGX ETFs or SGX listed ETFs, you can actually now buy them in single shares, which I don't know if, if everyone's aware of because that was a change that came in, I think, earlier this year or late last year. So no, normally the board lots in Singapore are actually 100 shares. So if you buy DBS or if you buy right. CBC or, or whatever, you, you would have to buy 100 shares, right? Yeah. So it's quite a decent capital outlay. But if you're thinking about ETFs, you can actually buy them in, in single shares on the SGX now, which is a, a big change and I think pretty positive for investors. So even more affordable now to get mm-hmm. into the ETF portfolio. So some would say for recession risk, the model portfolio would lead with minimum volatility and broad yep. quality ETFs. But say you wanted mm-hmm. an ETF because you wanted to take a stand on the market and you wanted an ETF that would allow you to short the market and index, yeah. would you be able to do that? Yeah, definitely. There are all these, these types of ETFs available. I mean, I, I think what I've been talking about or what I've been referring to here is physical ETFs. So they're ETFs that hold the underlying shares. There's also synthetic ETFs, which use derivatives and swaps. Um, that's a bit more exotic. And, you know, I, I wouldn't advise anyone, you know, the mass retail investor to, to touch those. And then there's also inverse, right, which is what you were talking about, Michelle, which is shorting. So inverse is basically do the opposite of what, what the index does. So say last week, the NASDAQ fell 5% on, on one day. 
if that if you had an inverse ETF of the Nasdaq, that your ETF would have uh, risen five percent on that day. And so that's basically shorting the index. And I think ProShares is one of the biggest providers of that. They do a short, they do a ProShares uh, inverse ETF of the Nasdaq, which is called a ticker S. So it's basically short in front of the QQQ, and QQQ is known as, uh, as as the provider of the Nasdaq ETF, which is Invesco. So uh, if you want to short the Nasdaq, it would be SQQQ. Mm-hmm. But I think the the expense ratio on these types of instruments are probably going to be higher. Mm. Uh, the liquidity won't be as good, and and obviously you're taking a maybe more of a risk on the fact that you're looking at downside and you're more more of a pessimist. But if you have the trading plan or if you have your you know your your strategy behind the portfolio, then that's fine. But I think inverse ETFs are probably less less popular than you know what what you would think would, it would be. And I suppose you, you need to factor that in along mm-hmm. with the number of times you expect to be changing positions, moving out of a position. So in terms of fees, what should we be looking out for with ETF investing? Yeah, I think with fees, it's. I mean, as I said, yeah, it's more the it's more the expense ratio and and looking at the the trading costs, obviously, of your broker. And if, if you're a trader, actually, the expense ratio may matter less, right? So I mean, I'm I'm more focused on the long term. So. For example, the QQQ, right? That's mm-hmm. the that's the flagship Nasdaq ETF, and that's done by Invesco, and that's massive. I, you know, that's that's the really popular one everyone knows of, and it's got an expense ratio of zero point two percent, so twenty basis points. But if you're a short term investor, you would trade that because the liquidity in that fund is is enormous. Um, but if you're actually a long term investor and mm. you believe in the long term growth of the QQQ, yeah, you know, uh, Invesco has actually launched QQQM, which is pretty much the same thing. It's just got a lower AUM, but it has five basis points cheaper. So 0.15% for your expense ratio rather than 0.2. Obviously, the spread will be a bit wider. The bid ask spread will be a bit wider because liquidity is lower. But if you're someone who's just sticking it in there or you're doing it once a month and you don't, you're not trading in and out of that, you know, that ticker, it's really not going to matter much to you. You know, the bid ask spread, it's not going to matter like a few cents here or there or 10 or 20 cents uh, won't really matter. So I think there's more a push for you to do your research on fees, understand are there alternatives to this out there for long-term investors. I mean, the QQQ is a great example. Maybe not everyone's aware of QQQM, which is more, I guess, for long-term investors, people who are long the NASDAQ and really believe in it and want to just continue to invest. Whereas the QQQ, that would be more for you know people who maybe want to trade or, or, or it's just the more popular brand, so everyone knows about it. But if you want to save on fees, you know, the QQQM makes sense if you're long-term. So QQQM is the top 10 holdings in NASDAQ? Yeah, it's basically yeah. during the NASDAQ 100, yeah. Mm, yeah. All right, got it. Uh, what would yeah. you say are some of the significant risks that we should bear in mind? You know, you mentioned the single stock ETFs, right? So what are the yeah. risks particularly of those? I think those, you know, you know, single stock ETFs, there's, I think, ETFs that, that are mirroring or, or sorting particular names like Tesla. But if you're looking at Weighting wise, you know, it's just more about understanding what, what your risk is on a, on a weighting perspective, right? And it's all the kind of, it's all the risk that you would have associate with the market more broadly right. anyway, right? It's mm-hmm. market risk, you know, timing risk, uh, liquidity risk as well. I think liquidity risk is a big one, especially in a, in an ETF, because if you're doing more thematic stuff, there's going to be less liquidity. And so if you're a trader, if you're trading in and out of it, it won't be as liquid as one of the larger ones. But I think on the whole, the more risk that you would take on in an ETF would be more focused on if you're doing synthetics or inverse, right? If you're doing something a bit more a bit more exotic with your ETFs rather than the plain vanilla 
physical ETFs, which track indices, right? And so it, just like owning stocks, you have to look at your sector exposure, you have to look at your country exposure as well. And so things like, you know, some of these Chinese tech ETFs have been absolutely hammered over the past couple of years. And so they haven't really escaped. It's the same as Tencent and Baba. They've also come down. And so these tech ETFs have also fallen quite hard with them as well. And the same thing with the NAS, you know, the QQQ, it's, it's all about the sector exposure. And if you're, if you've got a lot of money riding on tech, that's something that the QQQ will be um, exposed to as well. Tim, you're head of content and investment lead for Prosperous. Um, what sort of themes are you seeing in terms of growing interest in on your platform? Yeah, we're seeing a lot more interest actually in sort of like clean energy, ESG. You know, I think these are these are themes that are that I guess will probably stand the test of time. ESG hasn't had the best, I, I guess. Um, press publicity image and press <laughs> yeah be. recently because yeah. of issues and so I think you know as an industry we probably have you know work to do in terms of communicating it better I think there's a misalignment I think between the investment process and the output process right which I think is something that this HSBC um, head of sustainability which was you know I think he was suspended and then and then let go of he had a he had comments on you know I think quite controversial comments and so I think there were some aspects of the comments that some people probably agreed with, but obviously the way he communicated it probably wasn't the best way of doing it. But if you're thinking about the output, right, I think a lot of investors want to do good for the world, uh, which is admirable and, and that's great. But sometimes the investment process doesn't align with that. And then what I would say with ESG as well is that at the moment, there's no standardized framework maybe with with scoring and it's really difficult for individual investors to understand exactly you know, what goes into an ESG scoring system. There's, there's MSCI, there's Refinitiv, there's a whole host of ESG scoring systems. And so I think because of that, there's a lot of confusion. Uh, and then finally, I would also say ESG is also very personal to individuals, right? I mean, you saw Tesla get knocked out of the S&P uh, ESG index a few, a few months ago, and there was a lot of, you know, big hoo-ha about that because, that, you know, Elon Musk is saying that Tesla does however much for the environment with its EVs. But then S&P dropped the company because of issues around employment and, I, I guess, racial minorities and, and their treatment of racial minorities and, and women. So it's all very personal to you as an investor, which is why I think ESG investing is difficult through an ETF platform or an ETF route because you have to understand what the ETF holds and, uh, you know, and, and is it really holding what you want? Is that what you, is that what you yourself as an investor want to hold? Because someone like myself wouldn't hold tobacco or, or a company like Meta or, or, or something else, whereas maybe other investors would. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a very individual choice for mm -hmm. investors as to what they see as ESG and sustainable. Um, but we're definitely seeing more interest in that and, and also in, in, you know, I guess Chinese shares from an A share perspective, right? Something a little less focused on, it's a bit more, uh, it's not correlated as much to the US, it's a local market in China. It's less exposed to global flows like Hong Kong is because Hong Kong's market is, is open. And, you know, some of these ETFs that are focused on China A shares, they're more focused in areas that are more aligned, I guess, with the Chinese government's uh, policies, right? So there is an element of sort of hedging against U.S. stock market volatility or direction if you want to think about still being invested in China. So I think A shares are one of those routes that 
is more popular for investors rather than going through Hong Kong right now. I'm wondering what is your sense on the ground um, since your platform is geared towards millennials about mm. this new exchange-traded fund. You know, we were talking about it because it launched the first of this month, uh, Content Technologies K-Pop and Korean Entertainment ETF on the New York Stock Exchange. And that got a lot yeah. of fans of K-Pop excited. You know, people yeah. are a little bit wary because uh, it, it's rebalanced by AI, which actually scans for <laughs> for these words that are out there to make sure that these are, are bands or companies that are talked about are, are hyped up. And so that to me signals yep. volatility. Anyway, um, what do you make of the K-pop index? What exactly does it track? Yeah, well, I took a look at it. And, and what struck me first off is it's just tiny. I think the AUM is $2 million. Mm-hmm. So the liquidity on the name can't can't be very good. And I assume the bid aspirate is, is huge. Uh, second, you know, the expense ratio is high. I think it's something like 0.75% or 0.8%. So I, I'm not sure if this is more geared towards just fans and, and people who want to be invested towards, you know, a, a passion, I guess, uh, in terms yeah. of K-pop, because it is a sensation, right? It's a global sensation in mm-hmm. terms of their influence and the entertainment industry's influence in Korea, you know, their proportional influence in terms of their population versus their their soft power influence in, in entertainment is huge, but from an actual earnings, I guess, or or wealth wealth appreciation perspective, I'm not sure how much it's going to pay off. Given given, yeah, it's rebalanced via AI, and then you've also got a lot of risk maybe on on the artist side. I mean, you saw with BTS, they suddenly decided to go their own ways with their solo careers. Um, you know, how would that affect? certain companies that own it uh, that are managing them and have they got a pipeline of just new BT, you know, BTS people, BTS type of level sort of artists to take their place. So I think with entertainment, it's difficult. It's just like Netflix, right? They have to keep coming up with hits and hits and hits. And so now that they've got a competitive, uh, you know, they had a competitive advantage Netflix, but now that's been eroded. I, I'm kind of wondering the same thing with K-pop is, is it going to stay? Is it going to have the staying power for, um, you know, for another five, ten years? Mm-hmm. Um, it has had staying power for the past few years, so I'd, I'd definitely give it that. But there's there's more question marks, I guess, around whether this is more of a niche offering for people right. who are just fans rather than people that, that want to grow their wealth. Similar to maybe like buying your favorite football club. I mean, <laughs> I don't know if anyone knows, but Manchester United is, is listed. But I, I, I doubt many people buy Manu shares. <laughs> <laughs> I know some people buy property in the UK so that they can, yeah, you know, so they can go, yeah, that's, 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 a, that's a physical investment, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Tim. Okay, let's take a, a little yeah. look at the K-pop ETF. It's already down mm-hmm. from its first day pop, uh, twenty forty-five. Yeah. Back then, it's eighteen eighty-four. Uh, mm-hmm. Last I checked, but it's still early days. Yeah, I think it's early idea. days. I think it's dependent, as I said, on on the on the uptake of interest as well from investors, because I think with a with the expense ratio and with with the AUM, you, I think with an ETF to start being more popular and also being more traded, it really needs to scale up. So a lot of the companies that they hold are either listed in Korea mm. or or in Japan, right? So it, it's uh, I think it's a bit more. Actually, I actually think all of them are actually all of them are listed in in Korea. So you're focused on you're you're being exposed more to also the Korean market sentiment and also Korean liquidity in that market, like the Kospi. So I think it's important to recognize that not all these stocks are going to be sort of ADRs traded in New York, right? Or or OT, OTC names traded in New York. They're going to be names that are primarily have their primary listing in Korea. Mm. And so as a 
maybe you're a bit more exposed to currency risk as well with uh, with earnings, with the Korean won and the strong dollar. Right. You're probably more exposed to liquidity in the Kospi market. So there's a whole host of, of I guess, variables that you have to think about. But if you really are a fan and, and you want to buy it, I mean, that it's a, it seems like a good way to do it. It's just I, I'm not sure how, how much wealth it's going to generate over the long term. Sure. But, you know, you have an opportunity now if you want to bet on Korea's entertainment boom through this particular ETF. You've given us a lot to think about, Tim. Thank you so much for joining us. Tim Phillips is head of content and investment lead for Prosperous CGS CIMB Securities. We've been looking at the galaxy of ETFs today. Before acting on the information on money FM. Please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A W E D I O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.